electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, everybody. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC Senior Health and Science Reporter. Joining us for a Tech Check Plus live stream today is Dr. Christiana Barden, co-managing partner of BioImpact Capital. Dr. Barden, it's great to have you with us. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to get to talk with you in this format that gives us a little bit more time. And I want to encourage everybody out there in the audience to submit questions. We will get them to Dr. Barden um, and we're in for a really fantastic chat. And now is a great time to connect because we're both just off this giant industry conference, JP Morgan Healthcare out in San Francisco. Um, people talk about this conference as kind of setting the stage for the year in biotech and healthcare. Um, what did you think the vibe was there in terms of just sort of the sentiment around how people are thinking about biotech and healthcare more broadly? Yeah, so first of all, you know, biotech has been in a little bit of a tailspin probably for the last two years or so. That was coming off of 2020 when we saw a massive run up in the industry and record amounts of financing. That really was attributed to the fact that people were reminded of all the great things that biotech did, which is to cure COVID. Our diagnostics, the therapeutics, the antibodies, they all came from biotech. But then we basically peaked in February of 21, and we've been on a correction mode ever since. 21 was probably due to that run-up in 20, but then 22 was due to everything else, macroeconomic, inflation, geopolitical, et cetera. So, you know, I think the sentiment's a little bit worrisome for the, especially for those companies that may not see it through. But mm -hmm. that being said, you know, we're tremendously optimistic about uh, short and long-term about biotech because of the great science and progress that we're making in our companies. And that's ultimately what rec rescues the industry and the markets. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, it could be difficult for those companies that might not make it through. Are we in a period where, because there's still a lot of economic uncertainty, there is some expectation that the larger cap names provide safety in general. You know, we always kind of see that with pharma and maybe even to some degree, I'd love to know your thoughts about big biotech. You know, are those sort of more safe haven names, whereas it could get more difficult for the sort of riskier end of the spectrum to attract interest right now? Yeah, I think in the small and mid-cap biotech, we probably saw an excessive amount of financing and IPOs that were in 2020. So the mm -hmm. truth is, is many of the lower quality companies from that era may not go forward, right? So that's where the risk is, is, is if you accidentally run into one of those companies. I would say overall, with regard to large cap biotech and as well as pharma, I mean, the end markets are stable, right? So if you think about um, patients and their utilization of drugs um, for the, let's say, serious diseases like cancer or otherwise, those continue to need treatment. But then as well, people aren't losing their jobs. They're not losing their insurance. So they're going to continue to get treatments for other things, whether that's your knee replacement or, or, or other disease areas. So from that perspective, I think that the uh, end market has been stable, which has provided, let's say, stability for the larger cap companies with products out there. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the therapeutic areas that you think are of most interest and have the most promise right now and where we may be seeing some of the most exciting data. Yeah, so I always say people love our industry when they're reminded of the great things that we do for different disease areas. So, you know, 
2020, that was COVID, as I just mentioned. For the future coming out of 2023, it's clearly going to be obesity and obesity-related diseases. Mm -hmm. You know, we are seeing incredible progress in the treatment of obesity and obesity-related diseases. Just one example, you know, I always like to give the example, I'm 5'6". So a patient with a BMI of 30, which is clinically obese, would be 185 pounds. We now actually have treatments, the new treatments coming out from Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, which can actually generate a mean weight loss of 15 to 20%, which is incredibly meaningful and transformative for patients. So I think this is a huge trend for the industry. As you know, there are over 100 million, maybe 150 million Americans who are affected by obesity. To have that type of an impact at some point may near bariatric surgery levels. Yeah. I mean, these, these are incredibly exciting drugs for the investment community, for people in medicine as well. But obesity has been an area that the industry has tried to crack for so long. I mean, I go back to 10 years ago, and we had that sort of trio of drugs from smaller biotechnologies, oh, yes. Arena, Orexigen. You know, these drugs worked in a really different way, but there was this expectation that they were going to break through and be this huge new class of medicines. Um, maybe illustrate for us the difference between those drugs, why they crashed and burned so much, and where we are now on the precipice with these medicines. Oh, yeah. Now, I remember living through that era and the excitement that we had. Partially, the excitement was because they were the first drugs we really ever had that were approved for the treatment of obesity. The only problem is they didn't work that well. You know, working at kind of a tune of three to five percent, really doesn't make a material difference if you have a BMI of 30. And like I said, I was 185 pounds, taking 3% of my weight loss is not really material and not really going to change my outcome. It really wasn't until we saw this gen second generation of GLP agents that we've seen dramatic and meaningful weight loss. So like I said, the current drugs, for example, and these drugs, by the way, were, were originally approved for diabetes. Um, they work really well for the treatment of diabetes. The first generation didn't lead to weight loss, but the second generation does. And it's in the second generation of drugs, which are called the GLP drugs, that we've seen, like I said, up to 15 to 20% weight loss. By the way, future generations could see 20 to 25% weight loss, which would be incredible. Mm. And what are the side effects of these medicines? Of course, the last generation also, in addition to not having great efficacy, had some bad side effects. Uh, these work totally differently, right? What will that profile be like for people? Yeah, you have to remember one of the great tenets of being a physician is first do no harm. And especially for a disease like obesity, you need to make sure it's tolerable to patients, right? That they can withstand the side effects. So the general side effects of the GLP class is nausea. So you do get some degrees of low degrees of nausea, as well as other gastrointestinal side effects. Um, but I would say that the data look pretty balanced with regard to the tolerability in patients. It's variable. It also depends patient on patient. And so I think what we're seeing is the first well-tolerated drug. Um, it does need to be injected. That would be the only drawback, but that's subcutaneous. So relatively easy, let's say, for someone to learn to do at home by themselves. And what does the reimbursement situation look like for these medicines? Well, I think that's also the exciting air, uh, point, and it's also a big difference from what we saw from the, first, the drugs that you mentioned from Marina and Beavis, you know, 15 years ago. So those drugs were not reimbursed, probably because they didn't work that much and no one was that excited about them. But these drugs will be reimbursed. First of all, they are reimbursed um, currently for the treatment of diabetes. Once they are approved for obese patients, 
they will be reimbursed for obese patients. Currently, you have to have a BMI of over 30. So like I mentioned, if I'm 5'6", that would be about 185 pounds. You calculate your BMI based upon your height and your weight. Um, but also, in fact, if you have actually already, let's say, comorbid illnesses, such as hypertension, other risk factors for cardiovascular disease, et cetera, you could potentially be able to be reimbursed even with a BMI of 27. I think this dramatically changes the landscape in terms of availability and accessibility for our patients. You know, at a price tag of $900 a month, it's really expensive for the average American, but I would probably note that the entire Upper East Side is already on the drug and paying for it out of their own pocket. I was going to say, you read all these stories, like I follow Town and Country <laughs> Magazine on Instagram, and they're like constantly covering this stuff. It's like the new thing that all the rich people are trying to get. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy to think about the fact that we actually have an effective weight loss medicine now that is being used in this way. Yeah, but what I'm most excited about, as I mentioned, is the accessibility that I ha we'll have once we have reimbursement coverage for average patients. Um, but again, you do need to demonstrate that need by having a BMI over 30 or 27 with comorbid illnesses. Mm -hmm. There have been some issues for patients with diabetes actually being able to get the drug, right? Because there's been such demand, there hasn't been enough made. Is that right? Yeah, there's current actually a big shortage right now at Novo Nordisk. Um, um, this is a, these class of drugs are called biologics, so they need to be made, synthet made um, by a living organism, either a yeast or a, or a, a cell. Um, these aren't chemicals that you can just manufacture, and so it makes it a little bit harder to, let's say, ramp up the production. You need to anticipate that production ramp up years in advance to make sure you have the bioreactors ready to go. Mm -hmm. So this is a little bit more complicated. Obviously, Novo, um, I think, is basically seeing just outsized demand compared to their expectations. And so they'll need to ramp up in accordance. And all of the drugs of this class need to be manufactured in the same way. And so from that perspective, I think what we're seeing is incredible demand based on the efficacy. And then ultimately, hopefully, the providers being able to ramp up their manufacturing to meet the need. Mm. What, what is your understanding of how doctors are perceiving these medicines uh, for, for patients with obesity? Um, you know, often we've heard about doctors just focusing on lifestyle changes and, and things like that, sort of pressuring patients in, in certain ways. H how do you think they'll receive these medicines? Yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge always been with lifestyle um, changes is it's very, it's difficult, right? It's difficult to change your lifestyle. Um, we all should, <laughs> but me included, we don't always do what we're supposed to do. I just had a chocolate bar <laughs> two minutes ago, right? So the whole point is, is um, uh, lifestyle can usually only do so much for your average patient, right? So what I'm most excited about is that we have a treatment option to help patients to achieve their weight loss goals and their health goals. You have to remember that obesity is not just a cosmetic issue. It has impact as a general metabolic condition, which can affect being becoming diabetic, which can affect cardiovascular disease, which can affect neurovascular disease. So there's so many long-term sequelae of obesity that it's really medically important that we get a hold, a hold of um, it and treat patients early. Mm. From an investing perspective, um, is it a good time for investors to get into Lilly or Novo? How do you recommend, you know, if people are making decisions right now, are there catalysts coming up this year with more data or is it the sales numbers that come in? How should people think about this from investing? 
Well, I have to admit a little bit of, let's say, um, I'm not a large cap analyst, but I'll give you my opinion of how these drugs are going to fare. So first of all, obesity is, as I mentioned, affects over 40% of the U.S. population and worldwide, hundreds of millions of patients suffer. So this is going to be a, a huge indication. I would say second of all, I, as I mentioned, we're going to see accessibility for our patients. And so patients are going to be able to access the drug and therefore the company will get paid for the use. So I think this is a huge driver basically between Lilly, between uh, Novo Nordisk. The Lilly drug is also, now these drugs are not, um, are just in the process of launching for obesity. They're currently approved only for diabetes. So we'll have to follow that. You obviously can only get reimbursement if you're formally approved for the indication. So we'll have to follow the progress. I think what's also exciting is to follow the next generation of drugs. So for example, we're also seeing the GLP drugs being combined with other um, pathways such as amylin. And in those set settings, such as the Novo Cagrisema, which is semaglutide with cagrilotide, that has shown potentially 20 to 25% weight loss. So that would be, like I said, potentially mirroring bariatric surgery, which is pretty incredible efficacy. Hmm. Um so thinking about another therapeutic area that has had very little success until recently, Alzheimer's disease, you know, we just saw the approval um, of the drug from ASI and Biogen on Friday, you know, before JP Morgan, so maybe like a week and a half ago. Um, how, what is your expectation for how that field is going to do? Yeah, I mean, that's another huge unmet medical need, obviously, Alzheimer's disease, and not only unmet medical need, a huge societal burden. If you think about uh, the requirements to take care of Alzheimer's disease patients as they progress through their disease, it's a huge cost, and we need to address this immediately. Now, I think some of the debate that's happening around the various recently approved Alzheimer's therapeutics is around the clinical meaningfulness of the benefit, right? So it's hard for us to really know what type of impact. Of course, it's statistically significant benefits, and we see these in the trial results, but I think there's a little bit of debate. And so, you know, based upon that debate, we've seen hesitation in reimbursing the drug, right? So if it's not meaningful, insurers don't want to pay for it. And of course, the biggest insurer in this country is Medicare, and they've also taken a stand that they don't want to pay for it. So we'll have to see how the data roll out in terms of the meaningfulness. I would say that second drug that was approved is a little bit safer. So the one thing that was of concern, let's say, with the first drug approved was potential safety issues surrounding ARIA, which is a neuroinflammation. I think with the second drug that was approved, that's a little bit better. So that makes it a slightly easier discussion. But again, in terms of clinical meaningfulness, I think the jury's still a little bit out on that topic. Hmm. Uh, well, going more into your bread and butter of sort of the, the biotech world, what are some of your top picks right now, either in terms of stocks or therapeutic areas that you think are really promising? Yeah, so we're still really excited in cancer. As you know, we're one of the world's largest cancer investors, and we're still very excited. There was a recent drug approved from a company called Marathi Therapeutics, which is a targeted therapeutic. So targeted therapeutics are super cool because you can actually identify the specific mutation that a patient has and get a drug to treat that specific mutation. So Marathi is for a form of lung cancer called KRAS, and now there are two drugs available for that specific mutation. So that continues to be a really exciting area of drug development. Um, and I think the next generation of drugs in this uh, area of target therapeutics are going to be exciting as well. Mm. Um, 
I think NASH, uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis is oh, another good. area. That well, you said that oh, off. Oh, good big, job. Big, yeah, big fan of, of the NASH area. It's just been something that biotechs have been going after for, for quite a long time. Um, you see promise in it right now, and which names are you most interested in? Yeah, so I mentioned um, obesity is um, causes a lot of different diseases on top of um, because of the obesity. So one thing that happens is that if you have fat deposition in your liver, you actually can develop inflammation around that liver and then fibrosis. And that fibrosis can be so severe that patients would develop ultimately liver failure. So it's actually a very severe sequela. It affects about 8 to 10 million patients in this country. So it's a relatively prevalent disease. Now, prior to this, um, we've actually not had any treatments for, for NASH that have been approved. A company called Madrigal, MDGL, recently showed their phase three data, which showed that they can reverse fibrosis and NASH in patients. And that's tremendously exciting in preventing um, one of these um, consequences of obesity. A second company called Acaro is also really exciting in this space. They are an injectable, but they're um, also an incredibly potent antifibrotic. They're a little bit earlier in their development. They just finished phase 2B. But I think this is another big area, again, related to obesity, a, a disease area that we haven't had any treatments for, and now two companies that have um, drugs that show incredible efficacy for patients. Mm. Are you expecting big M&A in biotech this year? That's always a thesis uh, for a lot of folks expecting these sort of big returns. Would you expect a major deal this year? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to give a little background on M&A. You know, M&A, I always joke, isn't necessarily develop on, dependent on the markets because it's kind of like apples. You know, that basically pharma wants to pick the apples when they're ripe and they'll pay a big price for it, but they don't want to pay, pay a price for an apple that's not ripe, right? So the question is, is what kind of crop are we going to see in the biotech markets for this year? Now, in general, pharma wants to see de-risked assets, assets that have finished their phase two or phase three trials. You need to know you have a live drug before you close on that acquisition, or I always joke it's a career-limiting move. So companies like a Madrigal, for example, I think are a fabulous candidate for acquisition. Hopefully we'll see it taken out by the end of the year because again, huge market opportunity, huge unmet need and perfectly aligned with the uh, say current commercial sales forces of some of the major pharma companies. Hmm. Um, well, uh, running out of time, but um, in our last couple of minutes, I wonder if you could, um, you know, for folks who are not biotech specialists, what do you think is the best way for them to invest in this space? Yeah, I always say, um, my always joke is don't try this at home <laughs> necessarily, <laughs> because obviously, you know, people who invest in highly speculative companies that haven't yet shown their proof of concept, there is risk. Right. But I would say a few things, you know, that's one reason that we're tremendously excited about obesity and obesity related illnesses. That's a demo. That's a huge trend. That's a demographic trend. That's a disease area where, um, that has a huge unmet medical need. And we have many companies that basically have de-risked assets in that space. So, you know, I would say for it, let's uh, for your generalist investor, I think it's easier for them to get involved in later stage biotechs or companies that have already shown, let's say, proof of concept with marketed assets or phase three assets. Um, for earlier stage phase one, two assets, best to leave it to the specialists like us at MPM. Hmm. Do you think ETFs are a good way in or do you think maybe sticking to the broader therapeutic area uh, with larger caps is better? 
Yeah, no, I think ETFs are, let's say, you know, a general way to get in are pretty good, but you have to be a little bit careful. I mean, if you look at the ARC genomic indexes or others, they've been tremendously volatile, right? And, the, and although they had a huge run up in 20, it's been a complete meltdown since 21 and 22. So what you have to be a little bit careful of is, is where you are in the biotech cycle if you enter the ETFs. That being said, I think the cycle timing is really good right now. We've just coming off the end of a two-year meltdown. I would say valuations are super attractive, and we have a number of companies that are going to report compelling data over the next year, and that's how this industry comes back. So if you are participating in, a, in an ETF um, as a generalist, I think that's actually not bad timing right now. All right. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end our chat. I can't believe 20 minutes went by so fast. Oh, I got that went by quickly. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.